stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This Wednesday, this past Wednesday, actually, um, was the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And I know you've been reading a lot about it in the papers, uh, whatever it is. See, I always refer to reading about things in the papers. That's my generation. That's what I do. Uh, but I uh, understand that people get as much of this uh, information um, online, over their phones, TV, of course. But this is from um, a place called the History Website. Uh, that I am subscribed to, and tells you every day sent out, they sent out a little notice about what happened that day in history, whether it was 20 years ago or 500 years ago. <clears throat> it says, quote, Just after 6 p.m. on April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was fatally shot while standing on the balcony outside 
his second-story room at the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. The civil rights leader was in Memphis to support a sanitation worker's strike and was on his way to dinner when a bullet struck him in the jaw and severed his spinal cord. King was pronounced dead after his arrival at a Memphis hospital. He was 39 years old. In the months before his assassination, Martin Luther King became increasingly concerned with the problem of economic inequality in America. He organized a poor people's campaign to focus on the issue, including an interracial poor people's march on Washington. And in March 1968, he traveled to Memphis in support of poorly treated African-American sanitation workers. On March 28th, a workers' protest march led by King ended in violence and the death of an African-American teenager. King left the city but vowed to return in early April, which he did, to lead another demonstration. On April 3rd, back in Memphis, King gave his last sermon saying, We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. One day after speaking these words, Dr. King was shot and killed by a sniper. As word of the assassination spread, riots broke out in cities all over the United States. And if you're old enough, you remember that. Um, You couldn't forget it. All across the United States and National Guard troops were deployed in Memphis and in Washington, D.C., on April 9th, King was laid to rest in his hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Tens of thousands of people lined the streets to pay tribute to King's casket as it passed by in a wooden farm cart drawn by two mules. And there's a lot more to it, but I'll <clears throat> skip that now. Um, the um, King's murderer was uh, James Earl Ray, a white racist uh, from the South someplace. And uh, there was, um, of course, an FBI investigation, as well as local police, but an FBI investigation. And amazingly enough, nothing came of it. It turned out that he did it all by himself, which most people do not believe. I mean, I should say, most people who uh, are used to the FBI, were used to the FBI back in those days, and uh, most people who... um, were used to the way the government was behaving, especially in Vietnam, didn't believe a word of it. And Hoover famously hated Martin Luther King. We didn't really know how much at the time, but we found out later on. And this is the last part of the uh, article here. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover obsessed over King, who he thought was under communist influence. He thought everybody was under communist influence. For the last six years of his life, King underwent constant wiretapping and harassment by the FBI. Before his death, King was also monitored by U.S. military intelligence, which may have been asked to watch King after he publicly denounced the Vietnam War in 1967. Furthermore, by calling for radical economic reforms in 1968, including guaranteed annual incomes for all, King was making few new friends in the Cold War era U.S. government. And that was at the time Johnson and then Nixon. Um, I was about two months shy of my 23rd birthday when King got shot. And two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot. And again, a lot of you who were around then remember this. 
And one of the things they had in common was that J. Edgar Hoover, the ultra-right-wing closet queen himself, hated both of them. And back in those days, Hoover's FBI was at the height of its powers. It opposed every decent urge and movement and progressive person in the country. And it was breaking laws all over the place to do their jobs. It was a shameful time for the FBI. All this was smack in the middle of the 60s, and we had been in Vietnam officially, I think, then for about three years already. It was already turning very bad. The Tet Offensive had happened that past January, and what it did was sort of peel away the mask, this great conspiracy between the government and uh, you know, the military, all this bullshit that was constantly being pumped into us through the media by uh, the, you know, the military and the Johnson administration. Uh, U.S. soldiers fighting over there except for the brainwashed career officers, I guess, they already knew what a trap they'd all fallen into, what a hopeless mess it all was. And the bodies, more of them all the time, and the severely wounded, both mentally and physically, kept coming back to the States. And you would see these bodies, uh, you'd see the coffins covered in American flags, just uh, an endless parade of them coming off these military transport planes. And those, that was... Um, Still back in the, in the day, um, before uh, Afghanistan and, um, and before um, Iraq, when they often didn't show um, the, uh, the bodies being brought back until people started complaining that they were just trying to get away with things. And uh, this first happened, I think, during the original um, invasion of Iraq, uh, which was under President Bush, uh, the first President Bush. And, uh, well... What was happening over in Vietnam wasn't really a civil war so much as it was a genuinely revolutionary war. I mean, I'm not, you know, whatever the complex motivations, they weren't all that complex, I suppose, but whatever the faults of Ho Chi Minh and, and the communists and um, uh, whatever, whatever their faults, they were native Vietnamese and they were true revolutionaries. Um, just like we were revolutionaries once, exact, just exactly the way we were revolutionaries against British domination when our country was founded. And uh, in Vietnam, we were on the wrong side. People always look back in history and then, you know, the, the history goes through phases, or the way of people look at history goes through phases, right? For a while, it's seen a certain way when it's happening. Then later on, there's a kind of a depression afterwards or a celebration depending on who wins, or appears to win. And then people start looking into it, then people start writing about it, then people start thinking about it, and it goes through phases. But everybody knew then, at the time, and everybody knew right afterwards, and everybody has known for a long time, except for certain little phases here and there. When Reagan came in, this morning in America crap of his, people started thinking, oh, yes, well, <clears throat> that was America... You know, American um, boys were over there, and they should have gotten more support. There was more of that, um, more of that retrograde kind of stuff going on. But in those days, um, <clears throat> about halfway through the war, the major news media, TV newspapers, that was before the internet, they were finally waking up and seeing through all the lies. I mean, some of the big shot correspondents and the TV anchors had actually visited the battlefields and seen it for themselves. And that was that was still, again, as I mentioned, that was still when there was freedom of the press or relative freedom of the press. And the news media hadn't been embedded, that horrible, that stupid word, embedded 
or as Amy Goodman used to say, in bed with <laughs> the American military units, right? Of course, in the, when they were embedded with uh, the American military units, this started in the first uh, Iraq war, um, in, invasion of Iraq, I should say. Uh, they were hand-fed, basically, like household pets. The news was chosen for them by the military. And when, the, when they complained, uh, they weren't called on in press conferences, and they weren't given even the limited access that the rest of them were given. So that's how it was in those days. But in Vietnam... Uh, there was much more freedom of the press. And um, really, <clears throat> for many reasons, Vietnam was the first modern war America fought where reality, where the truth finally broke out into the clear while it was happening. You know, I mean, during World War II, which was a patriotic war that people weren't opposing at home, or not that much, especially after it started— you know, um, they had all kinds of censorship. They had tremendous censorship. But uh, people were all behind it and generally figured that uh, this was the right thing to do. Um, but this is 1968. People were beginning to find out the truth. It was coming out. But even so, with all the truth and the reality that people were, were finally becoming aware of, the United States fought and mass murdered in Vietnam, uh, amazingly, for five more years after 1968. But... You know, it was all rapidly downhill from there. And <clears throat> back in the U.S., partially because of the huge division here over Vietnam and partially because of the great battles and protests in the civil rights movement, um, speaking of Martin Luther King, and, and generally because the spreading public distrust of the government, which was getting really, uh, really massive and spread really all over the country, uh, in fact, uh, not just the federal government, but uh, of all government, <laughs> you know, everything goes too far, but especially the federal government, the country was in the midst of a kind of a moral and political civil war. It's the only thing you could call it. And Johnson and his leftover Kennedy industrial war makers were losing ground continually, and that little rat Nixon was on the rise again. Robert Kennedy, had he lived would almost certainly have won the primaries for the Democratic nomination for president and very possibly would have beaten Nixon, just like his brother eight years before. But Robert Kennedy was killed. He was assassinated, and nobody's quite figured out if there was ever a conspiracy there either. He was assassinated in early June, right, a couple of months right after Dr. King, and that was the end of that. I mean, uh, all the all the, the polite demonstrations, all the... Uh, what remaining trust an entire generation had uh, for uh, for the federal government and government in general just fell completely apart. And there were riots everywhere, and total cynicism and disbelief came in. Um, but Kennedy, when, in 1967, he was a senator from New York. He was already proposing ways of ending the war. He was already, you know, against the war over there, against our involvement. And back when he was the head of the Justice Department in the early 60s, he was also an advocate for civil rights. So there was a sort of a, a tangent there with him and, and uh, Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, by the time he was killed, he was a longtime and outspoken opponent of the war, exactly one, day to the, one, uh, one year to the day, I should say, before he was killed. He gave, uh, he gave one of his most—I um, wasn't there. I wish I was. But he was up at Riverside Church, and it was um, April 4th. Uh, a year to the day, like I say, before he was killed. April 4th, 1967, he was at Riverside Church and gave one of his most 
powerful, one of his most famous speeches. And um, among the many other things he talked about, including income inequality and the long road yet to go for civil rights, uh, which there was, and I suppose in a lot of ways still is, was the Vietnam War. That was one of the main topics he was talking about up there preaching at this church. And um, here's, here's something from um, an article last year that was in The New Yorker. Listing the reasons why he felt compelled on April 4th, this is 1967, to protest the war, King recalled visiting cities in the wake of riots and the guilty thoughts that attended his pleas for nonviolence. And quote, this is a quote, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. And this is, at this point, one of the most powerful uh, people in the entire country, one of the most um, influential people in the entire country. And he's talking like this, and it gets people like Hoover and everybody else even you know, vaguely like Hoover in the government or on that side of things uh, to the point where they uh, are certainly capable of murder. They've done it before, and they did it afterwards, and they'll do it again. And I've been in Riverside Church many times in my life, many times. And every time I go into the nave, I look up at the pulpit and I imagine Martin Luther King giving that speech. He was, if not the greatest, then certainly among the handful of the greatest Americans that ever lived. There's no doubt about it. He was the flesh and blood symbol to me of everything decent this country aspired to be originally. And beyond that, he was everything, I think, from what I understand, a true Christian should be. To America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. what will happen now we've got some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop I don't mind like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over 
And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Luther King, um, one of the greatest losses this country has ever sustained in its entire history, that that man was killed at that age and taken away from the rest of us. Sometimes I think the entire history of the country since that time would have been better. Maybe there wouldn't have been as many wars and uh, there would be more equality. We wouldn't be fighting over all these voting rights issues. But on the other hand, these things never change, do they? This is human nature but we would have had the strongest champion that we ever had, ever. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to take, uh, um, let's, go, let's go from the sublime, I think, uh, to something of the ridiculous. I'm going to take a short break from my habit of complaining about everything, and I'm just going to complain about one thing. And I'm going to start by asking you a question. Do you think it's wrong to want to shoot a little dog? blow its tiny canine brain out? Do you think it's wrong to shoot a little doggy? <laughs> there is a little yappy dog that keeps barking compulsively, relentlessly, maddeningly, sometimes for hours, right near my apartment, sometimes in the afternoon and sometimes in the evening. And last night, goddammit, in the middle of the night, this fucking dog barking. And it's a little yappy dog. It's a little yappy dog. And it... Uh, if I knew where the dog was, in which apartment it lived, I'd knock on the door. I, I wouldn't shoot it. I haven't owned a gun for a long time. 
and I hate messes. And I really don't want to get arrested and be separated from my wife. So, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually plug it. I'd knock on the door, hoping that the owner was home, and I'd tell him or her that their dog was out of control barking, and they had to do something about it for the sake of the dog and the general peace and quiet of the neighbors. And if they weren't home, I'd leave a note, or maybe I'd come back at night. But I don't know where this pooch lives. I don't know where this hellhound lives. I don't, I don't know. My apartment, because my apartment faces the back of the building, and there are four other fairly large apartment buildings all sharing one alley. So the dog could be in any one of a couple of dozen apartments, and I have no idea how to figure out which, which one since there is no access to the alley. And even if I could get back there, if the dog was on a higher floor, I still couldn't know for sure where it was barking from. Because once in a while, it does do somebody a favor and shut up, you know, it shut its little mouth. And the sound of the dog, the configuration of this alley, it's surrounded by tall brick buildings on, on every side. And it makes this yelping reverberate and expand so that the barking, which is basically, you've heard these little dogs yap before, it's kind of a high metallic yelp. You know, I'm not going to imitate it because my throat's bad enough. But it expands in volume until it like pierces your brain, until you're driven, even if you were a Quaker, you're driven to murderous feelings. I mean, really. And a lot of people in my neighborhood favor these little dogs. They're almost like toy dogs, probably because the apartments are generally small and big dogs could take up too much room. So when you take the elevator downstairs or in the lobby of my building, um, or in the streets all around where I live, and you take a walk around there, you see what looks like herds, like <laughs> like the buffalo herds that the, before they were decimated, vast herds of these little bow-legged, trotting, nervous, noisy dogs, including uh, my favorites, miniature Dobermans, who all seem to be insane with rage. Has anybody ever seen a miniature Doberman that didn't look like it was going to launch itself into orbit and bite somebody's throat out? I mean, they're crazy, those dogs. And chihuahuas. Uh, and the thing about miniature Dobermans is any of these toy dogs or these overbred dogs, of course, since it's unnatural and artificial, they're going to act in some bizarre ways or have extra illnesses. And they all do. And then there's chihuahuas. People have chihuahuas. And no matter how cute a chihuahua could possibly be to some people, not to me. To me, they look like large, tan-colored, almost yellow, hairless rats. That's what chihuahuas look like to me. And uh, if you have a chihuahua, I'm sorry, but that's how they look to me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really hard-hearted. Uh, I mean, I'm not really hard-hearted. I, I mean, I'm not Mr. Potter, you know, it's a, and it's a wonderful life. And sometimes these dogs can be very sweet and cute. But some of the breeds look like they've been jammed too long in a box. They do, or a bottle, and they're permanently stunted and misshapen. It's this overbreeding. I mean, why do people make these dogs? Why do people breed these dogs? I don't believe these dogs could exist in the wild. They all would have been eaten a long time ago by anything else. So I, I think that they're all unnatural. Um, what's the name of Gary's show? Natural Living. <laughs> this is unnatural dogs, right? But as for my particular dog problem, the yapper, the dog, <clears throat> what I don't, what, here's what I don't get. I don't get how the people who actually live right next door to wherever this dog is don't say something to the owner. I mean, I don't know where the dog is, so I can't say anything, right? I could scream out the window, but it wouldn't do me any good. 
But the people, there are people who obviously live in the apartments right next to the door or right next to the dog or across the hall from the dog. And they know where the dog lives. But nobody is apparently, nobody's saying anything to the owner, I think. Uh, maybe, maybe the people who live near, near, the, uh, near this dog, maybe they're out during the day working and they don't hear it. Or maybe, and this is always a consideration in an apartment building anywhere. It doesn't have to be New York. But I know it. I know about New York. You don't want to alienate uh, or irritate your neighbor because you live right on top of each other, right? And it could be very awkward if you have a bad argument with someone. That's people try to avoid that. You know, they, you know, people are making noise. They have uh, <clears throat> there's a guy in my building who plays a grand piano half the day. He's rehearsing. He's a professional pianist. <laughs> He's a professional pianist, and uh, he um, he plays his piano. And he plays um, modern music, which sounds like garbage cans falling downstairs or a bunch of seagulls being, um, you know, beaten and strangled. I mean, he plays this music all the time. And, I mean, if he played all day long, and he plays really loud, people have complained the building does nothing about it. And if, if he played stuff that had a tune to it or a melody or that was beautiful uh, or rousing or stirring, but it's all this discordant, atonal crap. Anyhow, um, but you know, people complain and somebody knocked on his door, somebody who lives right across from him and knocked on his door and said, please, you've got to stop. Can you please stop? And this is a very nice person who was complaining. And he got all huffy, you know, and he said, no, I have my blah, blah, blah. I have my rights. I have my rights, his rights. He just shoved his rights up his ass. And he, uh, you know, he keeps doing it and the building won't do anything about it. So you don't want to get an argument with your neighbor in a building, right? Because you live right on top of each other and you could be very uh, bad. And uh, you get into an argument, let's say, and then as long as you both shall live in this building, you wind up riding the elevator together, inevitably. You know, you run into people in the laundry room or down at the mailboxes in the lobby. Uh, it's going to happen. So you, you be careful about not arguing. You know, I mean, sometimes you have to say something, but you watch it. Uh, and even worse, sometimes depending on the neighbor's personality and disposition, I mean, a complaint could actually be dangerous. Where I live is on the fringe of a neighborhood that not so long ago in neighborhood years, the way we figure things, used to be a very heavy drug market. And it wasn't unusual to hear gunshots. You still hear the occasional gunshot up where I am. But it was a bit of a war zone several years ago. So you don't want to be complaining to a neighbor who's got probably uh, a pit bull and who knows how many loaded weapons. But uh, just it's a problem. As for the dog, <clears throat> okay, so let's say the nine-to-fivers, uh, they obviously, they wouldn't hear the phantom yapper during the day, right? But what about the evening when people are home? If this yapping little creature is off on a barking jag at home, you know, when they're home, when people get home from work and in the evening, why don't they, for God's sake, do something about it? I don't get it. It drives me nuts. I mean, I'm the kind of person who, uh, up until recently, I say up until the last few years, I was always the one who, uh, if there was a long, long line at the bank or at the post office and nobody was doing anything about it, I'm the one who would go to the manager and complain. I'm always the one in a group or a crowd that usually, I should say past tense, that usually did something or said something. And sometimes I still do it when people are standing around like sheep. Um, because people, you know, naturally, it's natural to sort of, not want to have conflict. People shy away from conflict. Um, and I didn't want the conflict. 
But uh, it seemed to me somebody had to do something. But people, this dog is barking. Nobody does anything about it. I mean, if this little rat-like creature lived next door to me or across the hall from me, I would make sure to complain personally in the strongest possible way. And if nothing was done, I would call the ASPA, ASPCA, or I'd call the cops. I'd make the, the owner's life miserable until he did something about the dog or the authorities made them do something about the dog. I don't know. Maybe this is a cultural problem. You know, this is a cultural problem. I don't know. In the last few years, a lot of the buildings in my neighborhood have been bought up and the apartments have been sliced and diced to bring in more rent by Chinese landlords. And I don't know if they're Chinese-American or Chinese-Chinese. Um, so there's a great many Chinese tenants in the surrounding few blocks, and a lot of them are students uh, and teachers from Columbia University, which is about eight blocks away. And they live in these, uh, in these cut-up apartments, which I'm, I'm sure are illegal. There's probably no window space or anything like that. And the landlords are making a tremendous amount of money. <clears throat> so the, the, the neighborhood is filled with um, Chinese people. Um, and um, I've had, you know, I had my, um, you know, I had, you don't have run-ins with people uh, because it's uh, the cultural diversity of New York. And good for it. Thank God for it. It's nice to see people who are different, right? and hear different language. Um, but, you know, I don't know the culture that well. I don't really know the culture hardly at all. Uh, two years ago, I was volunteering in a program uh, teaching conversational English to immigrants. <clears throat> and I had this really terrific relationship with a graduate student at Columbia who was from China. He was a really nice guy. He was about 27 years old. Um, he lived about two blocks away from me. Um, and he shared a three-room apartment with several other students and instructors. So there was already overcrowded. This is when these apartments had been started to be bought up and cut up. And the apartment he lived in had been divided. So the landlord was probably, I think the landlord was probably getting four times as much rent as he legally was entitled to be getting. And uh, one day there'll be some kind of investigation. The city will investigate these apartments because they can't be uh, safe. Um, and God forbid it won't be a fire or something. It'll just come out. And there are many buildings where I, around where I am, including down in this alley I was talking about, um, where this is going on too. And for all I know, maybe, I don't know, maybe there is a Chinese tradition that discourages complaints to neighbors. Maybe, could be, right? Or maybe people who are only here for a year or two just don't care that much or they don't want to get into any trouble with authority. Um, I don't know. Could be, I don't know who this dog, who knows, but people buy uh, pedigree dogs sometimes up where I live, and sometimes they get rescue dogs. And there's a lot of people up where I live who have adopted rescue dogs. And uh, these dogs, and it's good for them, right? Because these dogs have suffered abuse and neglect. And it could, it's possible that the yappy dog's owner is uh, probably not one of them. Because if you're going to go to the trouble who, to adopt a dog, if you care that much about dogs, you're not going to leave it alone all day long or kick it or beat it. I mean, after all, what's the point? You're trying to rescue it from that kind of uh, treatment in the first place. But um, <clears throat> I think, you know, my attitude about this is whoever would get a dog, whoever would get a dog, if, even if it is somebody who adopted a rescue dog, but whoever would get a dog deliberately, go out and buy a dog or choose a dog or rescue a dog, anybody who, who would go out and leave it alone for hours on end, such a person, I think, deserves to be locked in a small room by themselves just to know what it feels like. I would lock them in a room personally 
maybe after a few days, maybe without food or water, they'd start yelping too. It'd be interesting to hear their yelps, you know, or their roars or their cries for help, because that's what it is. Then you could record that and you could play it back to them. Maybe I should get in touch with Gina Gaspel, you know, the new head of the CIA. Uh, she knows all about torture. Maybe uh, maybe she could uh, deal with this, uh, the owner of this uh, yappy dog. Maybe she can help me out. Well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, one thing I can tell you after putting up with this dog's insensate screeching for a while now, which, by the way, is sometimes joined in by another or even two more yappy little creatures. I mean, last night, must have been two, three in the morning, um, it woke me up. And it's not just one dog. It's another one and then another one. I mean, it seems like there's thousands of them. (laughs) A dog chorus, yapping chorus from hell. And it happened once, and then it, and you, and you're always waiting. When is this going to stop? You're waiting and waiting, and then you drift back to sleep, and then <laughs> this horrible little rat-like yelp, and it starts all over again. And this happened in the middle of the night last night. I'm only hoping, I am only hoping that somebody this morning, uh, you know, maybe somebody complained last night, uh, but somebody that this morning. Uh, the authorities, or today sometime, the ASPCA or the cops will show up and look for the person who owns this dog because it's one specific dog that does this. But I could tell you, I made a scientific discovery behind all this. Dogs do not ever get sore throats or laryngitis. They can yelp, they can howl, they can screech, which all these little dogs do, including one in my building, which is on this, uh, the floor above me. They can do this for like... <clears throat> I don't know, six hours in a row, and they never get tired or have their voices give out. Never. And this is purely in the realm of empiric evidence. It's my impression that the smaller the dog, the smaller the brain. I mean, they're stupid. They bark for hours because they're lonely or because they heard a noise outside, and they're protecting the apartment, right? That's what they do. But after the potentially threatening noise has long disappeared, or after their owner doesn't come home, they just keep barking. They just keep barking. That's what they did. They never stop. I guess there is, well, all right. I guess there is some cause and effect. If they bark all day long, and then finally the idiot who owns them actually comes back, they see by their little doggy logic that all the barking was rewarded. So, yeah, you know, that's their logic. To be fair, which I uh, infrequently do now in my old age. Uh, I'm not very fair anymore. This quality of relentlessness in dogs is also one of the things they're most famous for. I mean, their ability, uh, you know, just to stick with something or somebody, no matter what, is, uh, is what they're famous for. There's even a word for this quality, doggedness, right? Somebody's doing something doggedly. I know, I know. A dog, a dog, yeah, I know I'm complaining about dogs, but a dog is the epitome, really, or can be the epitome of unadulterated love and devotion. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? A dog will sometimes stick to an owner who's cruel, right? We've all heard about this or seen it or whatever. Somebody who kicks or abandons a dog or generally treats it like shit. And the city dog shelters are jammed full of dogs who have been treated like this. I mean, fortunately, there are a lot of people who have good hearts and adopt these dogs. Unfortunately, though, these could often be the same dogs that bark like lunatics. And we've all heard about, uh, like I said, we've heard about the dogs being loyal to cruel owners, but I actually got involved in a scene like this once. I was uh, sitting in my used bookstore out in Brooklyn, 
And I looked out the window and saw a guy literally kicking a dog. Unbelievable, right? And the dog wouldn't walk off or even run away. Sort of a medium-sized dog. And it was on a leash, but the, the guy had dropped the leash. It kept crawling toward the guy on its belly and whining, get kicked again, roll away a little bit or stare at him, and then come back. And there were people standing all around, right? And they're yelling at this guy, but uh, they're not really doing anything. And I watched this for about two or three minutes, and I'm hoping, like I used to, that somebody in the crowd would do something. Because back then, like I said, I was always the one stepping in to do something about it, and I was getting tired of being the only one all the time. So I waited a little, but it kept going on and on. And finally, it was too much. Just like Popeye, I said, that's all I can stands. I can't stands no more. And I jumped up and I ran out the store and I ran across the street and I grabbed the, dog, the dog's leash to pull him away from the guy. And he stares at me and I stare at him and he curses at me and he's got a stick in his hand and uh, I stare back at him and uh, finally he, he drops his eyes and he spits on the sidewalk and walks off. This is my, my encounter with this guy. And I took the dog back to the store and when I closed up that day, I took her to a shelter. And um, that was my experience with that kind of thing. But getting back to these little dwarf dogs, they seem much more high-strung, more quick to take offense than other dogs. You notice that? In fact, they would get especially nuts around bigger dogs. I noticed this. Maybe, maybe it's just because they, the little dogs, are so small. There are some short people that I've run across in my life, and I think we've seen this. Uh, uh, maybe other people have seen this, too, or you know people like this. Or maybe you are one of these people. <laughs> are you a short person? You remember that, uh, you know, Randy uh, Newman short person song? There's some short people, and mostly men, who are like that. They're touchy. They're quick to resent or argue with anybody who they imagine has intruded on their space, right? Because they can be very touchy, little little people. Um, and I, you know, I like dogs. I do like dogs. I think for the most part they're lovable little creatures. I mean, they're simple-minded, and they're single-hearted, which is the good thing about them. And they're infinitely less complicated than human beings. So, you know, that's for sure. And that's a great relief. I never owned a dog for long. I never owned a dog for long. Maybe it was because of the first one I had. It was when I was a little kid. Uh, and somehow, I don't remember how the dog was acquired. We wound up with a toy dog. I don't remember the breed. With a total lack of imagination and maybe lack of interest on my part at that uh, at that time, I was about nine or 10 years old. I was already drifting away. And yeah, the dog's name was actually Toy. <laughs> called a toy. And at the same time, <clears throat> we had a white Persian cat named George. And it's typical, so typical of the miasmic sexual fog in my house that George turned out to be a female, the cat, right? And yeah, the two of them, Toy and George, got along. Basically, how they got along? They didn't get along. They were like cats and dogs. There was always a lot of hissing and growling going on. In the beginning, the dog would get in the cat's face. But a uh, one time, a good swipe from the... Uh, cat's claw to the dog's nose, put an end to all that, and the uh, toy retreated. But pets generally in my house didn't fare well. There was, there was just too much drama and free-floating sadism for any small creature, and that included uh, the human children in the house, one of which was me, to thrive. Too much crap going on for a thriving of little people and even little creatures. <clears throat> but still, I, as much as I was capable of it, I was attached to this dog toy. And one day I'm playing in my front lawn, and the dog was racing around. I hear brakes screech, and I turn around, and I see the dog lying on the ground. And uh, I went out and picked up the dog, 
the owner of the car was standing there outside the car, horrified. And I carry the dog about 10 feet, gets very warm in my arms, and blood comes out of the dog. And that was the end. Anyhow, except for this brief interlude with this dog toy, I never owned a dog when I was growing up at all. In fact, I was always afraid of dogs. Sometimes it got so bad that I'd start to shake if I was anywhere near a dog. And the bigger the dog, naturally, the worse my fear. Of course, uh, most dogs, and it's especially the male dogs, they sense your fear, you know, right? They, they, that brings out the worst in them, uh, the most aggressive behavior in certain kinds of male dogs, maybe all male dogs. Uh, and and isn't, that, isn't that the elemental under, understanding about dogs <clears throat> that they can sense? Maybe they smell, literally smell probably. They smell fear, and it provokes some atavistic wolf-like response in them, right? It's the same with human beings. And once again, I'm guessing it's males we're talking about here, right? It's got to be males. If you show fear or weakness, you're going to draw the attention of any predator in the vicinity. And of course, there are men, thankfully, they're usually in the majority, I mean, most men, who are not like that. Men in whom, like a fellow human's weakness or disability, wouldn't provoke sadism and cruelty, but sympathy and compassion. But uh, as we see, most of the men who wind up running things, like businesses or high level in the army or let the head of a fraternity or, uh, you know, in government agencies, people get to be president maybe, they, um, <clears throat> they wind up being this kind of uh, predator dog that attack people who are weak, who take advantage of people who are weak. This guy, Bolton. Bolton looks like a large guard dog who would... Uh, kiss the ass of anybody who, uh, you know, who had a, a, a whip or anything over him, but would probably bite anybody, certainly would growl or bite anybody who was smaller than him. I mean, he's, he's a classic character, right? And I've never been in the, in the, in any, like in the army or fraternity, but this kind of, this male sadism is always there. It's like a strain in the human race, which it can go along subdued for generations, right? But then, under the right circumstances and the wrong circumstances, it, it could just burst out and consume everybody. <clears throat> and people say, well, this is the law of the jungle, right? You, I mean, that's the kill or be killed, like in business or politics or between tribes or nations, right? The weak or the defenseless or simply just people who are softer, who are like gentler, kinder-natured people, they become prey to the strong. The majority picks on the minority, it's a story that repeats itself throughout history. It is history. You need people like Martin Luther King come along and <clears throat> say to all the people who've been picked on, who've been bullied and everything, and who are being treated like shit, that uh, we don't have to take this. We can get together and we can use our power. But he's gone now. Um, <clears throat> and it's just, like, it's just like at our country now, in the USA. You have this big, nasty dog on top, uh, Trump. Uh, who inside is nothing but a scared chihuahua, I'm convinced. And this encourages the most primitive people to show their teeth. Out come the racists and the sexists and the white nationalists and the Nazis. And this time, the Jews are the immigrants and the old and the poor. <clears throat> I, I once had a neighbor. I had a neighbor once. He lived right across the hall, and he's long since gone to his reward. Uh, and considering this particular neighbor, I think his, uh, his reward involves, his just reward involves a great deal of heat and probably creatures with fangs and tails sticking with pitchforks, or at least I hope so. Anyhow, this, uh, this jerk, he had a huge, gigantic, baleful-looking German shepherd. This dog, and I'd see the guy walking him on the street sometimes, 
projected a constant level of menace. It's one of those dogs, right? Occasionally, the dog would actually leap at another dog or even a person. And I noticed that any time that this dog scared the shit out of somebody, especially a child, this guy, who was a nasty prick, uh, he would get a little smile on his face. He would get this sadistic little smile on his face. Anyhow, probably that's why the dog was the way he was. I mean, this guy probably maltreated him and gave the dog to understand that bad behavior would be rewarded, right? Maybe he gave him a, a little dog bone after he lunged at somebody. And it was more than that, I think. You know, you know how dogs reflect their owner's personality? You see this, right? I think this guy who was, he was very ugly, this guy. He was bullet-headed, and he was beady-eyed, and pot-bellied, and a huge wart, a gigantic wart on one side of his face. Disgusting. And I think, though he never acted aggressive himself, he transmitted, uh, he transmitted this kind of aggression into the dog. And, uh, I mean, think of Richard III. What he says at the beginning of the play, he says, and therefore, I, I got this out of Wikipedia, and therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, I am determined to prove a villain. And in this case, the guy's dog was, uh, you know, not, anyhow, I was always willing, I was always telling this guy, I was always telling this guy, keep the dog in the apartment, just keep the dog in the apartment, but he wouldn't do it, he wouldn't do it. And um, whenever I had to encounter this dog, I remember, I, you know, I'm, that you have to project strength around certain kinds of dogs, especially big dogs who look a little fierce. And I did this, and the dog didn't bother me, just sort of looked at me, occasionally would growl and would stare at me. <clears throat> but one time, was the last straw. My son came over to visit. He was about seven years old. And he was staying over at my apartment. It was one of the times during the week he stayed at my apartment. And we get to the door of my apartment. I take out my key. And this jerk from across the hall opens his door. And he had no reason to open his door. This was just part of his innate sadism. He would always open the door. And the dog is right there with him, right? And the dog, um, you know, lunges at my son. Growls and actually lunges at him. This is a huge dog. And my son who is, um, you know, who's naturally the sweetest little guy who loves everybody and everything, right? He was scared to death. I get him in the apartment. He's shaking. And I was too, I finally, I call the cops, right? And I get buzzed uh, from downstairs a couple of minutes later. The cops come up. They get out of the elevator. And they're walking down the hall um, just a little bit. And this guy comes out again with the dog into the hallway. And the cops say, sir, you know, in that cop-like voice, sir, Put the dog away, please. And he just stands there, this guy, with the dog growling at the cops. And he's not even on a leash, right? And I'm looking at this through the peephole. <laughs> I'm not going to stand two feet away from this dog in the mood he's in. And I don't want to get shot by the cops. The guy's, the cop guy says, gets his gun out. He actually took his gun out. And it's just this like hallway, which is no more than 20 feet, 25 feet long. And he says, sir, put the dog away or I will have to shoot it. And I'm hoping, I have to tell you, I'm hoping that the dog and the guy get shot because I was enraged at what happened to my son, who's still sort of shaking over there on his side. Finally, he gets through to this guy and, um, you know, the cop, and he puts the dog away. So what happened, I'm the denouement after this, is the guy gave the dog away. This is what he says. He was telling a neighbor, because I didn't talk to him anymore. He told a neighbor that one day he got up, one night, in the middle of the night, he gets up and the dog... <clears throat> had lifted himself up at the foot of the bed and was growling and staring at him and his wife like they wanted to, like the dog wanted to eat them. <laughs> this jerk. Who knows what he did with this dog? Anyhow, they gave the dog away. Uh, so, 
the last time I, the last time I, there was one other time I owned a dog. It was about six years ago, and I bought a very expensive puppy, which people told me not to do, and I shouldn't have. I should have rescued a dog. But it was a small dog. It wasn't a dwarf like these other dogs I'm talking about. But it was a mistake to get this puppy. And by that time, this is only a few years ago, and I should have realized this. I was being selfish, I guess. I was too old and out of it to take care of a puppy, so I had to give her up. <sighs> dogs. And I still can't believe the dog barked in the middle of the night last night. That was a new one. Anyhow, well, so much for my little dog story. Maybe someone will get up the nerve to tell the owner of El Yapo, who's ruining my life and everybody around us, to get a dog walker or to give the dog to someone who can take better care of it. Maybe somebody will get through to the owner of this dog. Or maybe the ASPCA will come and just take the dog away. I hope so. As for me, I guess either I steer clear of my own apartment. This is why I have two choices. I could stay away from my own apartment, which I'm not going to do, or I have to develop a stronger tolerance for the noise. And that's how this tale ends, just like the world will, not with a bang, but with a whimper.
Well, I saw Lon Chaney walking with the Queen Doing the werewolves of London I saw Lon Chaney Jr. walking with the Queen Doing the werewolves of London I saw a werewolf drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's hair was perfect. And this has been Mike Fader. And if you want to get in touch with me, just go to my website, Fader Files. That's F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S dot com. And there's a contact link there. Again, thanks for listening. Well, it's all. Wonder what tomorrow will bring. Maybe a diamond.